At first glance, this story seems like a clumsy intrusion into the overall narrative of John chapter 6, in which bread is the unifying theme. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 in verses 1 to 15. And then in verse 22 and following, the crowd catches up with Jesus on the other side of the sea. And Jesus says to them in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes. And he goes on and says, I am the bread of life. And John chapter 6 is very much about bread. There's the literal bread, the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. And then in 22 and following, Jesus is explaining the meaning of the sign. And he is talking to the people about their response to the literal bread and the bread which is signified, namely Jesus himself, the bread of life. So that's kind of the overarching theme in John chapter 6. And here in verses 16 through 21... We read about Jesus walking on the water and the disciples taking him into the boat. And we wonder, why did John include this? He himself says toward the end of the gospel, I didn't write down everything. There are many things that Jesus did and taught that I didn't write down. So we know that John's been selective. We also know that John is not just writing haphazardly, sort of in stream of consciousness, and just writing things randomly as he thinks of them but that there's a thematic order and arrangement. And so it's just interesting, why would he include this here? It seems to be kind of a clumsy intrusion. Why not, why not include it after? By the way, when Jesus was traveling from one side to the other, he walked on water or something like that. Why here? Is this an instance of sloppiness? Is it unrelated? Hold that thought. Matthew and Mark provide greater detail about this particular incident. We read, if we put Matthew, Mark, and John together, we read more details than we read here in John alone. If I were to retell the story incorporating all the details, it would be something like this. Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, sends the disciples away so that he could pray. And Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And this is probably the evening hours. Jesus is up on the mountain praying for several hours. The disciples are on the sea rowing for several hours. It's been become dark. The water has become choppy. The disciples are out there in the midst of a storm. And if you have ever paddled a canoe or paddled any other kind of boat for even 15 minutes you know that it can be tiring, especially if you're not accustomed to that sort of thing. Even for these men who are accustomed to being on the water and rowing, it's still a vigorous activity. And so around what commentators say would be three or four in the morning, Jesus, it says in Mark, I believe, sees them rowing. Whether this is that he perceives them, he knows what is in the heart of man and he's using his supernatural ability to see them as it were in a figurative way or whether he's just literally up on the mountain and looks down and sees them which is not a geographic impossibility around 3 4 in the morning Jesus knows comes to know that the disciples are struggling out there on the water Jesus comes down and walks to them on the water 
When Jesus came close, they were frightened, understandably. Seeing a person is not scary in and of itself, but seeing a person in the wrong place at the wrong time can be terrifying. If you think that you're home alone and you're standing at the stove cooking something, and you turn around and you see a person, you'll be scared. Because you think you're home alone and it's the wrong place and the wrong time to see a person. Likewise, if you're rowing a boat at 3 or 4 in the morning and you see someone standing out on the water, that's terrifying because it's the wrong place and the wrong time to see a person. The other accounts tell us that they think they see a ghost. This is probably them putting two and two together. This can't be a normal fleshly person or he would be sinking. So this must be some kind of spirit or apparition. We also read that in the other accounts that this is where Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. It's the same incident. And then in the other accounts, we read that when Jesus and Peter got back in the boat, the wind ceased. Not all of those details are included here. Again, we have to recognize that John omits certain things for certain reasons. Doubtless, all of these things are significant details which would be profitable to study in their own right. But none are included in John, so we'll pass them over and narrow our focus to what John includes. However, we will pull one phrase into our sermon this morning, taken from the Gospel of Mark, found in Mark six fifty one and 52. Mark tells us that the response of the disciples to this incident is that, and I quote, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. And I pulled that phrase in merely to show us that this story is connected to the overall narrative about bread in John chapter 6. It's not an accident that John places this walking of water incident here in the middle of the bread narrative. The disciples were utterly astounded. Why? Why were they utterly astounded? Because they did not understand about the loaves. In other words, what should the disciples have understood about the loaves that would have kept them from being utterly astounded. First, and at a very basic level, the feeding of the 5,000 ought to make us supernaturalists. There are, believe it or not, seminaries, seminary professors, commentators, who will tell you that the miracle here was the miracle of sharing or something like this, that one little boy brought out his food and shared it and each one realized that if it was going to go around, they had to take just a small bit and everybody was emotionally touched as they all shared. Well, that falls apart on the face of it because they gathered up 12 basketfuls left over. So obviously that didn't happen. Others will tell you that the miracle was to be explained in, in merely natural terms, not supernatural terms. 
that everybody was so hungry, but they were just enamored and, and just enraptured in what Jesus was saying that they had forgotten even to eat. And then when the boy pulled out his lunch, just how it is when you're hungry and you see food or you think about food, then you're like, oh, wait, we're hungry. And so they also pulled out their lunches and began to eat. And when everybody ate, there was 12 that. I'm... It's crazy, I know. Why, why not just... Why not just if you're a seminary professor that taught that, why just not, not just go find a new profession? If you, why, even, why even claim to be a Christian? Why even bother to study the Bible? Why even bother to teach it? If that's the way that you think, and that's the, way, that's, that's the level of respect that you have for the Bible, why not just go find a new job? Why not just drop the Bible, drop Christianity, drop seminary altogether? But nevertheless... There is such a thing as those who adopt basically a naturalistic view of this world. And it's not just the professed atheists who do that. Sometimes it's professing Christians who do that. But we need to be wary and careful lest we adopt a subtler but no less naturalistic perspective on the world. Would the story of a miraculous incident immediately elicit a cynical response from you? Or a skeptical response from you? That betrays something of a naturalistic worldview. Obviously, people can report the truth or they can report falsehood with respect to a supposed miracle that happened, of course. So just because someone, we're not to be gullible on the other end of the spectrum, just because someone says that a miracle happened, it does not necessarily follow that a miracle happened. But just because someone said that a miracle happened, it does not automatically follow that a miracle did not happen. If your immediate response is, well, that could never happen. What's the difference? Really, you have a naturalistic worldview. But the Bible is chock full of supernatural events, including the feeding of the 5,000. God repeatedly shows us in the pages of Scripture that he is, he is not bound by principles which are higher than Himself. It's not as if God operates within what we might call the laws of nature, the way that we are forced to do. God transcends those things. And He is free at His will to violate those things whenever He pleases. At a very basic level, the feeding of the 5,000 ought to have made the disciples supernaturalists. As it ought to make us supernaturalists. So at a very basic level, we could just say, well, the disciples wouldn't have been utterly astounded if they were supernaturalists. If Jesus came out walking on the water, it shouldn't have been that shocking to them. But there's more going on here. In John's Gospel, chapter 6 is set against the backdrop of the Passover. Look at 
verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then... That's interesting, isn't it? Did you catch that? The Passover was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming to him... Then basically means therefore. The Passover was at hand. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing the crowds come. You understand that it was in part because the Passover was at hand that Jesus gave these people miraculous bread. That's very interesting. And it's you could miss that if you're reading quickly through this section of Scripture. But it's not just that. Later on in the passage, there is a very clear exodus motif picked up, resumed. Look at verse 30. They said to Jesus, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, etc., etc. Right now, we're not exegeting those couple verses, but simply to show that at the beginning, Jesus does something because the Passover was at hand, and then later, again, that same motif is picked up as we're talking about the Exodus, and manna, and Moses, and the wilderness. And so bread is a major theme, but so is the Exodus. After all, the Passover, the first Passover, was a meal instituted by God on the night when the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Remember, they slaughtered the lamb, and they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of the house, and they sat down and they ate bread. And they ate unleavened bread, Signifying that they didn't even have uh, time to let it rise because they had to get out of there in a hurry. God was now executing their salvation, accomplishing their salvation. And so they had to eat unleavened bread with their cloaks tucked in and their shoes on their feet because now is the time of salvation. That was the first Passover. And then... The Passover was called, in later years, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first Passover was when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and each year they commemorated that event by what is called in Exodus twelve seventeen the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so you see, bread is very much connected to the Passover. And Jesus gives them bread... Since the Passover is at hand. Therefore, in Jesus' mind, He intends us to read layers of meaning into what's happening in John chapter 6. On a basic level, as we talked about last week, without even discussing the Passover, at a basic level, Jesus is the bread which gives life. 
You don't need to understand anything about the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You don't need to understand anything about that to understand that without bread, you're going to die. With bread, you can live. Jesus is the bread that you need to live. Without Jesus, you don't have bread and you die. That's basically what we looked at last week. But Jesus Jesus wants us to understand the events of John chapter 6 at a deeper level also. It's not either or, but it's both and. There's a basic meaning, but Jesus wants us to understand layers of meaning in the events of John chapter 6. And so, seeing that the Passover was at hand, he lifted up his eyes then, in view of that, therefore, and gave them bread. Signifying, as the bread signified, now is the time of your redemption. Now you're no longer going to be slaves. Now you're going to be set free. Now is the exodus. Get your shoes on, tuck your cloak into your belt, and eat this bread. It's time to go. Not only is Jesus the bread of life, but Jesus is here in feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6, giving them a Passover meal. So what is, in view of that, the significance of Jesus walking on water and this narrative being introduced right after this? What was the attitude of the people prior to the parting of the Red Sea? We read it earlier in the service. Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. Remember Pharaoh came out after the people and they were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching out after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What was the attitude of the people prior to the parting of the Red Sea? They did not have confidence in God. They didn't have confidence in God. In spite of the fact that God had done all kinds of miracles, supernatural things, they didn't have confidence in God. And in spite of the fact that God had given them a Passover meal and led them out and effected so great a deliverance as to get them to the shores of the Red Sea, they did not have confidence in God. What... Let me ask you a question. What was the attitude of the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000 before Jesus walking on the water? It's not in the text, so we've got to make some inferences. Some critical thinking. Let me ask another question, which is a bit of a clue. What does being astounded after the fact look like before the fact? 
not having confidence. Right? The only reason you'd be astounded is if you didn't have confidence in the first place. The only reason you'd be shocked afterward is if you didn't think it could happen beforehand. The response of the disciples to Jesus walking on water in John chapter 6 shows a certain lack of confidence in God. Their view of God was too small. Their view of God was too limited. It was too weak. On the one hand, as I said earlier, they were not supernaturalists, at least the way that they should have been by now. And so on that level, they were surprised. But on another level, they didn't yet understand. This is, this is, Jesus is God's messenger here to set us free from slavery. To lead us on an exodus. We just ate a Passover meal. If they were having those kinds of thoughts of God, they wouldn't have been so utterly astounded when Jesus came walking to them on the water. They, like the people who just came out of Egypt, had a lack of confidence in God. It seems that what we have here in this passage is a greater sign and then a lesser sign. Just like we could say that the cumulative effect of getting the Israelites out of Egypt in the first place should have given them confidence that he could get them through the Red Sea. So, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 should have given the disciples confidence that Jesus could walk on water should he choose. What should have happened is that there should have been a reasoning process in the disciples' heart as there should have been a reasoning process in the hearts of the Israelites who came out of Egypt. If God can do that, He can do anything. If God can do what He's already done, He can do anything. And if that had been their attitude, the fear wouldn't have been there in the first place, and the astoundedness wouldn't have been there after the fact. If God can do that, He can do anything. And this is the takeaway for us from this section. If Jesus is the bread of life, who has come to give us Himself that we might have life to sustain our bodies and our souls into eternity, that we might live with Him in a resurrected state after this kernel of wheat, as 1 Corinthians 15 calls it, goes down into the ground and then is raised imperishable. If Jesus is the one who can give us life, which is what the bread signifies. If Jesus is the one who is giving us a Passover meal, as it were, leading us on an exodus out of slavery, well, then He can do anything. That's the greatest. Anything lesser then should not surprise us. We shouldn't be shocked if something else, smaller, so to speak, happens. 
I mean, in one sense, a miracle is a miracle. But after God becomes flesh and walks among us and dies and on the third day rises and ascends into heaven and pours out His Holy Spirit, should anything really surprise us? If God can do that, He can do anything. That's what it would mean, as Mark says, to understand about the loaves and so not be utterly astounded. Let me remind you of Mark 6, 51 and 52. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. The implication is had they understood about the loaves, they wouldn't have been astounded. If we got the full significance of what Jesus did when He fed the 5,000. That He is our life. He is the bread that gives life. And He is serving up these people a, a Passover meal. Saying, get your shoes on your feet. Tuck your cloak in. It's time to go. Your salvation is here. If they understood that, then when Jesus came to them walking on the water, it would have been like, oh, hi Jesus. They would have been happy, no doubt. They would have been joyful, no doubt. It would have been thrilling, no doubt. It doesn't mean that it would have been just passe or insignificant or inconsequential to them. But they wouldn't have had that feeling of surprise. Like, oh really? He can even walk on water too? (laughs) If they understood the significance of what had happened, they wouldn't have been so utterly astounding. The takeaway for us is that we should not be utterly astounded by any good thing that God does. We should likewise reason from the greater to the lesser. If God has done that, He can also do this. If the meaning of the sign is that Jesus gives life, And that Jesus is the new Moses, so to speak, the mediator sent to rescue us from slavery and to lead us out. We shouldn't be surprised at anything else that he does. John doesn't focus on the disciples' lack of confidence, nor does he focus on our own. But it is indubitable that he intends this story to further strengthen our confidence in God. The takeaway that John wants us to have here is, look, after Jesus does all of this, then look, he even comes to the disciples walking on the water. We should... The other Gospels indict the disciples for their lack of confidence... That's how they use this story. John doesn't use this story that way, but John uses this story more positively to inspire the kind of confidence we should have. We should have confidence in Jesus as the one who gives us life, who leads us on an exodus, and who can come to us and meet us even in seemingly impossible ways. We should not be astounded by anything God does. I want to tell you two 
situations, I guess. One is a situation, one's an event. Two little sports analogies. One is, sorry, I have to borrow uh, from NHL, the National Hockey League, because I'm not yet familiar enough with uh, Caribbean sports. But my favorite hockey team is the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Stanley Cup is the championship. You want to know when the last time was that they won the Stanley Cup? 1967. 52 years. That's a long time. Listen, if the Leafs won the Cup, I would be astounded. Every year, Leafs fans are hopeful. Some years they go further than others, but they always seem to fail. One year, I should have looked up the details this week to refresh my memory so I could tell the story better. But I think it was about five years ago. They were playing a best-of-seven series, so you got to win four games to win the series. And they were up in the series three games to none. And they were up in the fourth game. I think, it, I think the score was four to one, if my memory serves me correctly, with like eight minutes to go in the fourth game. And so you would think they were eight minutes away from winning the best-of-seven series. And the other team scored, and the other team scored, and then the other team, what you can do is you can pull your goalie and put out an extra skater, like an extra attacker. So they did that, and then they tied the game up, and then they went to overtime, and the other team won. So now the series was at 3-1, to one, and you still think, well, they're going to surely win one of the last three games, but they didn't. <laughs> if the Leafs win the cup at any point in my lifetime, I will be astounded. All right, because I don't have confidence, right? Okay, but listen, here's the other one. There was a bout in the UFC, mixed martial arts, combat sports, and the bout was scheduled to be between Conor McGregor, who was at that time the best in the world, no one could touch him. And another opponent, his name slips my mind again, I probably should have looked it up to tell the story better. But his opponent was like the number one ranked contender. And then with, I think it was a week to go, the contender was injured and had to pull out of the fight. And they asked the guy named Nate Diaz to take the fight. And Nate Diaz is kind of middle of the pack. He's not known to be one of the best fighters in the division. But he's known to be the kind of guy that would take a fight like that on a week's notice. And he took the fight, and lo and behold, he won. And then afterwards, as they were interviewing him to find out how he felt about his win, you know what he said? I'm not surprised. You see? The first story about the Leafs, no confidence. The second story about Nate Diaz, confidence to spare. You understand? We should have the kind of attitude towards God that when God does something in our lives, we should be like, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Because not only is Jesus the one who can sustain our lives by giving himself to us. Not only is he the one who leads us on an exodus 
But he's the one that, should he choose, just goes out and walks on the water also. He's the one that raises up the sick from their sick beds. He's the one that opens the eyes of the blind. When we hear about how God is at work in someone's life, we shouldn't be like, really? God did that? You're serious? That's treating God like He's the Toronto Maple Leafs. Instead, we should be like, I'm not surprised. We hear stories of how God is has miraculously worked in this way or in that way wherever, here other places in the world and frankly sometimes we're just too cynical sometimes we ought to be cynical because some of the, some of the reports doubtless are as a certain someone would say fake news Sometimes we ought to be cynical. Uh, let, me, let me pick on Bill Johnson again from Bethel Church in Redding, California again. I was picking on him a couple weeks ago. Let's, let's just go ahead and do it again. He was, I was watching a thing where he was talking about how they were worshipping and what he called the glory cloud came into their midst. Now, when I read about the glory cloud in, uh, I believe, Second Kings... The priests couldn't even enter the temple to do their work. But Bill Johnson said, look, I'm going to show you footage. So I said, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> Listen, what he was calling the glory cloud was this little wispy little thing. Like up in the rafters of their auditorium. Listen, I'm not, I'm not wowed by that. Not because my view of God is too small, but because my view of God is too big. Like a wispy little thing floating up in the rafters? It could be dust from dirty ducts, for all I know. That sort of thing doesn't, doesn't impress me, and it doesn't really surprise me. Um, but I'm not surprised either when I hear somebody who was lame was made well. Somewhere, someplace. I don't necessarily believe it a priori, because as I say, some reports can be fake news. We ought not to be gullible people. Stories circulate on Facebook all the time, right? About this or that or the other thing. Whether it's religious, whether it's non-religious, people share memes, people share news stories all the time that have no basis in fact. So if I hear about how a leper in India was healed on like some Facebook post and you know it's like like and type amen if you want a similar miracle in your life nah, never mind that song. but it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere at some point someone was and I've heard some reports that I think are probably true sometimes you hear it's like well a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend or I heard about someone somewhere on some other continent who did such and such a thing well maybe I don't know there's no way to verify but I'm not immediately cynical like that could never happen. I'm like, well, even if it did happen, I'm not surprised. 
Because Jesus is the one who gives us life. Jesus is the one who leads us on an exodus. Even a cursory reading of the gospel should make us supernaturalists. So if I hear about something like that, I mean, investigate it, or in some, to some extent, I'm like, that's great. But in some ways, to me, it's a moot point. Because I'm like, I already believe that the God I serve is a God who works miracles anyway. So this story neither challenges my thinking nor, you know, strengthens my belief or something. I already believe that. So it's like, I'm not surprised. When I hear about how God is sustaining the faith of someone going through a hard time, a difficult time, and really meeting them in a, in a felt way, and that they're walking really closely with the Lord and having sweet spiritual times of fellowship in the Word of God and in prayer. I'm not like, really? The Lord is actually close to you at this time? He's actually carrying you like a shepherd carries a lamb in its bosom? I'm like, I'm not surprised. That's the kind of God we serve. In fact, that's what Isaiah 40 tells us He's going to do for His people. He's going to carry them like a lamb close to His bosom. When I hear about wonderful ways that God is doing things in pockets here and there, for individuals here and there, for people here and there, I'm not like, really? I'm not astounded. I don't treat God like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Rather, I have that same kind of confidence, albeit in a different object than Nate Diaz had. But I'm like, I'm not surprised. When we read John chapter 6, we should be supernaturalists at a basic level, but we should also understand something of Jesus' identity as conveyed by this sign which it seems Jesus understood us or wanted us to understand as Him providing a Passover meal. Which makes Him the mediator leading us on a new exodus. Getting us out of slavery. Get your shoes on your feet. Tuck in your cloak. It's time to go. Your salvation is now. If we understood, If we understand the meaning of the sign as that. Jesus is the bread who gives us life, the mediator of a new exodus. And He's the one that even just comes to us walking on water. Wow. By the time you get to John chapter 6 and verse 21, your confidence in God. I, I would say this high, but I think we need someone like Peter to stand up. Right? We need, our confidence in God should be soaring by the time we get to John chapter 6 and verse 21. Because not only is Jesus who He is to those people in verses 1 to 15, but God is who He is to those people in 16 through 21 also. The bread of life, the mediator of a new exodus, and the one who comes to meet them, even in a surprising and miraculous way. Let us believe that Jesus is that. Let us have confidence in Jesus as He whom John 6 
portrays him to be. Let's not rationalize away the supernatural elements of the Gospels the way that these theological liberals do. Let's not even adopt a functionally naturalistic worldview the way that, frankly, some cessationists do. But let's be those who have a supernatural worldview and sky-high confidence in Jesus as the one who came to give us life through His life, death, and resurrection. By the same, to lead us on a new exodus that we might no longer be slaves to sin and under the curse, but that we might be those who are led out of slavery by Him, even across the water and eventually into a promised land to live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's have confidence, sky-high confidence in the Jesus that John chapter 6 portrays for us.